0: South of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeyville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanning. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeyville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 162, covering the week of March 18th through March 22nd, 2019. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeyville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You don't want to find all those things, go out to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll find all of our social media buttons. While you're there, give us an email address, and we'll give you a free ebook. and you'll get our daily dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. You can also support the Abbeville Institute while you're at abbevilleinstitute.org by clicking on the button that says Support at the top of the page. Under that, you'll have a a, a tab that says Donor Options. You can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time donation. And so all of that is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law, and you can help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. We're also to announce that we have a new project that is getting underway this weekend Uh, coming up. We are recording some of the things, so it's going to be a great initiative, something that you're really going to want to be part of, and as we release those uh, these uh, recordings, what we're doing, um, you're going to want to get uh, give us some financial support for that. I, I think that uh, it's going to be a game changer for the Institute and for Southern Education. So uh, look for that. It'll probably be available, I would say, uh, in sometime in the early summer. But uh, we're recording this weekend. It's going to be a grand time. So uh, I, I can't give too many more details about that. But that's what we've got going on now. Also, we have our summer school coming up. It is uh, at the end of July. In fact, I will tell you the dates. Put this on your calendar. We will be announcing the summer school uh, within the next uh, week or so. But the summer school takes place between July 21st and July 26th in Seabrook Island, South Carolina. The topic is the New South. July 21st and July 26th in Seabrook Island, South Carolina. The topic is the New South. It is going to be a very good summer school. So if you have a student that wants to attend, an advanced high school student, a college undergraduate or a graduate student, or if you are one of those things yourself, if you are a person who is in law school, for example, seminary school, graduate school, undergraduate, then uh, think about attending the summer school. It is a wonderful place. It's on the beach there in South Carolina. So it's not just a bunch of stuffy lectures. You do have time to enjoy the outdoors in a real nature environment on the beach. It's it's just a, a, a great place. So uh, keep that in mind, July 21st through July 26th, 2019, the uh, next uh, annual summer school for the Abbeville Institute. Okay, all of that said, let's talk about the material for the week. Um, we had uh, some interesting material this week. First of all, March 18th is John C. Calhoun's birthday, so we had a piece on John C. Calhoun. I say on Orthodox, it's old. The piece was written over 100 years ago. But the reason uh, we published that particular piece, it's a it's a book review, it's because historians used to understand John C. Calhoun, and they don't any longer. And I say they don't understand him because simply what we have now is uh, the modern historical profession, whether they're on the right, quote-unquote right, the neoconservatives, or whether they're on the left, the progressives, or even the left libertarians, are consistently getting Calhoun incorrect. And that's because ideology has trumped uh, historical craft and historianship. And I, and I say that because if you read Calhoun, you cannot come to the conclusion that all these people come to. And that, that is that the South was an oligarchy, that the South was anti-Republican, that the South was somehow a deviation from the founding tradition. It wasn't any of those things. And if you also read Calhoun, in Western civilization, particularly in the 19th century, people study Calhoun all over the world. Uh, it's, it's uh, it, Clyde Wilson used to tell me that he had people come in from Europe all the time studying John C. Calhoun, and not because of Calhoun's positions on race or slavery, but because Calhoun was an original political thinker. Um, his disquisition on government uh, it was uh, something that people studied because of its uh, understanding of the limitations on central power and how to do that. Um, so Calhoun was... Someone that had a a keen political mind and also a keen economic mind. He understood banking and finance better than most people in America, better than most people in America today. So to simply uh, characterize Calhoun as the defender of slavery, as Samuel Flagg Bemis did, is to miss the point. Now, uh, Bemis didn't really, Bemis did is to miss the point. Now, uh, Bemis didn't really understand Calhoun either. Uh, but Bemis was uh, a diplomatic historian and um, a nationalist. And so you have you did have, even back in the 19th and then early 20th century, uh, historians who didn't really understand Calhoun either. But you had a bunch who did, uh, particularly um, when you look at those that were honest and reading Calhoun's writings themselves. That's, that's the key. I mean, nowadays we have people like Matthew Karp, who has published a, a stupid book on Calhoun Um, that uh, essentially regurgitates the 1850s slave power thesis, which uh, I think was conclusively disproven about 50 years ago. But yet we're coming back to that again. I mean, this is what the historical profession does. It it swings back and forth. There's a pendulum. And so now we have the regurgitation of the slave power thesis, and that's what the neoconservatives are pushing. That's what the left libertarians are pushing. Of course, what the progressives are pushing, too. They're all working uh, with this uh, thesis in mind. So... Uh, I'm going to talk about Calhoun a little bit more and give you some examples from this piece. We also have some other interesting pieces. March 17th, of course, was the birthday birthday of Patrick Cleburne. uh, St. Patrick's Day, fitting the Irish Confederate. Patrick Cleburne was an interesting individual. And the first piece of the week was by William J. Hardy, who was um, Cleburne's commanding officer in the war. And he wrote this piece shortly after the war was over uh, as an honor to Patrick Cleburne. And, uh, of course, Cleburne died during the war. Was uh, shot down uh, horrifically, shot down, and um, in a futile charge, uh, was riddled with bullets, uh, doing what he was supposed to do. And uh, he he understood the costs. He understood the challenges that we're facing. And of course, we can look at these battles in Tennessee near the end of the war, where uh, Cleburne was slaughtered, and many Confederate uh, officers were, slaughtered as a blundering uh, move, or uh, but. The, the fact is, at that particular point, these people were desperate, and desperation pro- produces um, bad decisions. And the war was clearly on the downside for the South, and they wanted some type of, of uh, conclusive victory. They just weren't going to get it in what they were doing, and uh, that's the tragedy of, uh, of these actions here in Tennessee at the end of the war. But uh, Cleburne was... Uh, the, the As I said, the Irish Confederate and, and Hardy has only great things to say about him. Uh, this is a man uh, in a couple of ways. I mean, Cleburne was someone who believed that independence was, was uh, more important than anything else. Um, he was advocating arming uh, slaves long before many others were advocating it in the in the South in terms of a comprehensive policy. We all know that some of these things happened anyways. But as far as recruiting and then uh, arm out and fight for independence and then fight for their own independence, he was firmly on board with this and actually advocated it over and over again, advanced it over and over again. Uh, Robert E. Lee eventually uh, decided that was a good idea. And of course, the Confederate government decided it was a good idea right at the end of the war. Uh, But there was, uh, Cleburne was interested in it long before that. Um, So uh, he was someone who was uh, much more forward-looking and saying, you know, the the important thing is our independence. All this other stuff doesn't matter. If we're not independent, what's going to happen to the South? In fact, he said that he didn't want to live if the South lost the war, and he didn't. And Hardy says that was um, uh, maybe fitting, maybe beneficent to, uh, to Cleburne to die and not have to see Reconstruction. Uh, because I mean this is uh, this that was a miserable time for southerners across the board whether it was uh, black or white reconstruction was uh, not an easy period to go through um, and there were lots of uh, of course convul there were lots of uh, of course convulsions in that period which anybody knew were, was going to happen uh, based on how the war ended and uh, these the social atmosphere at the end of the war but that said, uh, cleburne was one of the great heroes of the war. If you don't know much about cleburne he was also a real uh, gentleman, a real honorable man. And I think it's important to have these individuals and to understand if you are interested in the Southern tradition, if you're interested in the South, it's not just the battles and, and uh, these type of things. Uh, it's also the character of these people all throughout Southern history. I mean, Southern history is 400 years. It's not just four years. And so, but when you, when you find examples in the Southern tradition, people worthy of emulation, I mean, Cleburne is one of those individuals. Uh, anybody can benefit from that. I mean, this is what Booker T. Washington was saying uh, when he wrote back uh, to a lady from Opelika, Alabama, saying, you know, we, we need some money, uh, to a lady from Opelika, Alabama, saying, you know, we, we need some money for our, for our Confederate monument. And uh, Washington said, yes, um, I think that we need to have more of these monuments to the greatest of of, uh, Southern character across the South. I mean, he understood that putting up monuments to great men was a good idea because it would remind people of the great character traits that made the Southern tradition beneficial to America at large. And that's what we're doing here at the Institute. What is it about the Southern tradition that actually uh, helps support the architecture of American civilization. And uh, without the South, we don't have some of those things. Uh, You know, without the South, there is no America. I mean, we don't have Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Monroe and all those individuals without the South. I mean, the first uh, permanent colony was in the South. Important part of the American tradition. But you're not going to get much of that anymore because we're simply fixated on identity politics or uh, you know, some type of uh, social justice agenda, you can't do that and still, uh, and still admire uh, Southerners for what they were, which was flawed men, but certainly great men. Uh, there are no perfect men, and they were men of their times, and so to hold them uh, uh, in, in contempt for being men of their times is simply preposterous. But that's what happens now, and we can't admire uh, we can't admire anybody uh, that uh, had some character flaws, mo- what we consider modern character flaws, because well, I mean that's just not that they're they're not fitting with our politically correct ideology, and this is how stupid these things have gotten. Uh, the fact that there was a, a um, I think it was University of Pennsylvania. Uh, now this has nothing to do with the Southern, but of course Western civilization in the Pennsylvania, the students uh, decided that they didn't like. William Shakespeare, so they forced the, they went and took down a portrait of William Shakespeare at the English department, right? Um, Yeah, I mean, you you almost can't make up the stupidity, you almost can't make up the silliness, but uh, I mean, you you really couldn't parody this stuff, Uh, but here we go. Uh, So this is, you know, the attack on on the South and the attack on the Southern tradition is part of this, it's the low-hanging fruit. It's the easy stuff because, of course, Southerners are slave owners. Uh, Southerners uh, were uh, uh, talked a lot about uh, defending slavery by the 1850s. So it's easy to um, say we're going to rid America of this stain on American history. Uh, But, of course, this ignores Northern complicity and all that. It ignores that slavery was an American institution. As Larry Ties pointed out in his book Pro-Slavery, you can't peg the War on Slavery, because it was an American, inst- Calhoun, for example, is often painted with as saying, this guy's an awful guy, actually was, uh, was created, originated in the North. The very first pro-slavery treatise written in America was written in 1701 in Massachusetts. And so Calhoun was not unique in his pro-slavery positions. He was unique. And his political positions, in terms of his concurrent majority uh, and his ideas on political economy, um, in that he was coming up with a way to protect minorities in America. This would work for any minorities, by the way. I remember I was having a debate one time when I was in graduate school with an individual, and and uh, and I said, "Look, this he was uh, he was African American, and uh, we were having a very friendly debate." And I said, "Well, look, I mean Calhoun is." Uh, is a uh, he's protecting minorities he said yes this is what i'm interested in he said then when you would love john c calhoun why don't you love john c calhoun he was interested in protecting political minorities that's what i'm interested in he said then when you would love john c calhoun why don't you love john c calhoun he was interested in protecting political minorities that fits for you too and he really didn't know what to say about that um so it's conversations are essential and i and i say that because uh, just uh, this this past week there was an individual and he's He's, uh, he's trolled me several times on social media, um, and, uh, but uh, talking about how I, I get tired. Sh- should I get tired of saying the same things? Well, I mean, no, I don't get tired of saying the same things. This is how you persuade people. Uh, and he listens to the podcast even though he says he hates it, but he listens to it every single week. So maybe that's because uh, there's something that he just simply likes about it that he just can't get over liking about it. So maybe one day uh he'll be persuaded. Probably not. But maybe one day he'll be persuaded. And uh at least as I've as uh, you know, he's listening. At least he's listening. So uh, you, and and uh with with perhaps somewhat of an open mind. I mean, I don't know. But uh, regardless, um he's listening. And so it doesn't matter if you agree with me or not, you're listening. Uh and this is important. I, there was actually a scene and it's you know, of course Fiction, But there's a scene from the film Michael Collins where uh, Michael Collins, the great Irish patriot, uh, is, is uh, confronted by a G-man, right, who's uh, who's, inter- who's uh, interested in helping the cause. And Collins says, you know, you're a G-man. What are you doing? And he says, well, I attended every one of your speeches and uh, it, it started rubbing off. I started listening. I had to write down. I was sent here to, to monitor you and you started convincing me. Uh, So (laughs) there is hope if you're listening every week, maybe, Uh, because I say the same things because this is how you persuade people. If If I said something different, anyways. So we had uh, we had that great piece on Cleburne. and uh, moving on to Calhoun. Uh, this particular review was from the the correspondence of John C. Calhoun, which was uh, published in, uh, in 1899 to 1901. I think this particular volume volume was published in 1901. Uh, but Jay Franklin Jameson was one of the founders of the uh, American professional American historical movement. Uh, I mean, he was uh, he helped establish the American Historical Association. Here's a guy that was so instrumental in the earliest uh, phases of the American historical profession. Uh, And he admired John C. Calhoun, or at least was objective in John C. Calhoun. And I think that's the important part of this. Um, He collected Calhoun's writings, his correspondence. And uh, this particular uh, piece uh, was written by uh, Edward G. Bourne, who was one of the founders of Latin American, the Latin American uh, field. In America, So a uh, historical field. But when you look at what uh, Bourne says, uh, it, it, and this is this is interesting. He says, quote, as revealed by himself, Calhoun stands out preeminently as the conservative. He is not the radical, not the aggressive leader of the slavery, but the steadfast champion of the republicanism of 1798, the republicanism of 1798. Well, if you read Calhoun, of course you're going to get that. Um, he says it is only with the rise of the Texas question and the increasing divergence of interests and views between the new democracy of the, the new democracy of the North and the surviving original Republicanism of the South that the slavery question looms pretentious in Calhoun's mind. Earlier, the inequity of protectionism and its baleful political consequences are his main concern. So. It's only because of Texas that slavery becomes important to Calhoun. Uh, it's only because of, uh, before that, it was just, it wasn't slavery. Now, of course, if you, if you listen to um, some of the individuals in the profession, it was always about slavery. Calhoun was always concerned with slavery. Uh, and uh, nullification was always about slavery, you see. And the South was never Republican. The South was always oligarchic. Well, here here Bourne is saying, well, the South is Republican. The old Republicanism, original Republicanism. The delicate balance of powers and functions established by the Constitution he believed to be America's most valuable contribution to politics. And when time revealed that to the finely adjusted balance between the states and the federal government, there must be added an equally adjusted balance between the sections. Calhoun's life work as a conserver was clear. Only by preserving this last balance could the painfully constructed equipoise of states and central government be maintained, or the wise allotment of powers and functions to the different organs of government be secured from derangement. So he's talking about the balance of power here. Um, and see, he, he understands Calhoun. This is amazing. You, wouldn't, you would not be uh, able to write something like this today in a modern historical journal. You would not be uh, able to write something like this today in a modern historical journal. Uh, This was actually published. This particular book review was published in the 1902 edition of the American Historical Review. By a professor at Yale. Of course, Yale had Calhoun College no longer. Um, So, Calhoun, a graduate of Yale, one of Yale's most outstanding graduates, now is... (laughs) Not allowed to even be anywhere on the buildings there at at Yale. But uh, this again, that's politically uh, political correctness run run amok. Uh, okay, so this piece I've already talked about enough about Calhoun and and uh, we could do Calhoun for an entire episode and just uh, discuss Calhoun. But uh, there's some other pieces of the week that I think are interesting. Uh, the piece on Wednesday, Mississippi's free speech confusion by Walt Garlington. Uh, this is an interesting. There's a bill. Before uh, the state, uh, the state house and misprotect free speech. And um, that's well, that's on the surface a great thing. Right. I mean, we, we want to protect free speech. Uh, we want to protect uh, the idea that um, that we have uh, a free speech. And he, he lists the heart of the bill, Section three. Uh, Expressive activities protected under the provisions of this article but are not limited to any lawful, verbal, written, audiovisual, or electronic means by which individuals may communicate ideas to one another, including all forms of peaceful assembly, protest speeches, and guest speakers, distribution of literature, carrying signs, and circulating petitions. And Section 4, the outdoor areas of campuses of state institutions of higher learning in this state shall be deemed public forums for the campus community, and state institutions of higher learning shall not create free speech zones, or other designated areas of campus outside of which expressive activities are prohibited. Um, So he says, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? Um, The problem is that this particular... I mean, this is a great idea, right? I mean, we want to have free speech zones. I mean, it should just be a a given in in the United States, with its Anglo-American traditions of civil liberties, that we have free speech. I mean, for all people. It doesn't matter if you believe one thing or another. You have free speech. Uh, of course, the the I, whole idea of political correctness is to clamp down on free speech. It's Orwellian. That's the point. Um, uh, but free speech is not violence. Speech is not violence. Speech is not violent action. Speech is not vandalism or destruction. That is not speech. That's vandalism. Standing out and saying, we're, and I've said this on the podcast before, standing out with a bullhorn in front of a Confederate monument saying you don't like the monument, is free speech, tearing it down, spray painting it, painting on it, that's vandalism. You see, there's a big difference. So saying you don't like these things, great. Uh, also, I mean, tearing them. Saying you don't like these things, great. Uh, also, I mean, tearing them down uh, in in any form is uh, you're you're basically saying that. Um, you don't believe that individuals who uh, who put that monument there, or who support that monument, have a right to free speech either. And so that's the problem. I mean, the, the the point of the left typically is to shout down their opponents, and if they can't beat them intellectually in arguments, they just tear it down and say, you can't speak. You're no longer allowed to speak. We're going to silence you. So having free speech is great for both sides, right? I mean, uh, people that want to uh, protest these monuments and Uh, protest Southern symbols or protest conservative, whatever it is, whatever they want to protest on the right uh, or uh, uh, we say these are on the right. If they want to protest America because that's what they're doing, then go to it. Uh, Protest all day long. uh, Say that you don't like it, but don't vandalize or tear things down. Protest all day long. uh, Say that you don't like it, but don't vandalize or tear things down. Now, the problem is, again, this is relying, as Garlington says, on the First Amendment, when the Mississippi Constitution certainly covers this. Uh, this, is, this, is the, this is where nationalism and what happened after the war, uh, where everything became a national issue, uh, and the state constitutions are no longer even you know, nobody to be paid attention to them. Uh, that's problematic. This, uh, free speech is protected in the Mississippi state constitution, so this shouldn't even be an issue. These people should be told that well, you can't do that because it violates state law. State law protects free speech on on campuses across Mississippi, um, and as Garlington asked, though, should we? I mean, should college campuses simply be places of free speech where people are going to shout ideologies at each other? I mean, the idea there is to learn, but of course, if all we're going to do is study math and science, and you don't really study anything else, I mean, uh, in uh, in South Carolina, there's a bill that would uh, have to learn history anymore in high school. It's not required to learn history. Of course not. Of course, it's not required. I think it's uh, when I was in Florida, uh, history was not a required subject uh, at colleges and universities. So you could take all kinds of other things in place of history it just wasn't required. Uh, well, if that's the case, I mean, you, you can understand why these people don't know anything. They go out and protest Confederate monuments and statues and flags and all kinds of things. They, they protest Thomas Jefferson, and George Washington, because all they're ever taught is by, is by Twitter or mass media Uh, That's how they get their history, or through television shows or movies. This is how they get things. Or they do get the one professor that's uh, some burned-out hippie that uh, hates America or hates the South or whatever it is, and that's what they're getting. America is just bad all the time. And they they ingest this stuff, and that becomes their worldview. So uh, what do you expect? When they don't study history, they study ideology. This is what you get. When you don't read Calhoun, you just read... Uh, when you don't read Calhoun himself, uh, I recommend if anybody can get, get copies of this Clyde Wilson's Essential Calhoun, where he goes through. This is a man that worked on John C. Calhoun in his papers for almost his entire professional career. If anybody knows what John C. Calhoun said about things, it's it's Clyde Wilson, and he published a a, a condensed volume of Calhoun's best writings, and he pulls out certain he pulls out parts and says Calhoun's views on this, Calhoun's views on this, Calhoun, and he 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 talks about it right so. Uh, he uses Calhoun's own words. So if you want to read Calhoun, go read Calhoun. Don't read Matthew Carp. <laughs> read Calhoun himself. And if you do that, I think you'll have a different view on John C. Calhoun. Uh, but, uh, and and to, to say all this, uh, the, the piece on Thursday was um, uh, sort of along this line. It was... Um, Written it was a written in 2017, so it's a little bit older, but it's Silent Sam: A Personal Experience by Jonathan Harris. Jonathan Harris during the Silent Sam protest before the statue was pulled down, and uh, he talked to the protesters from a position of I support the statue. Tell me I'm wrong, and he said that um, it was. It's a it's a long piece, so I don't really want to. There's not a lot of time left in the show, but it's a long piece. And he gets into some of the arguments being made. And he was able to counter those arguments in a very conversational way. He just sat down. He, wasn't, he said, well, I wasn't carrying a flag. I just came out carrying a cup of coffee and saying, hey, why do you guys hate this thing? I love this thing. Why do you hate it? And he had a conversation. And he said near the end of this, this is why we have the podcast. This is why I say the same things over and over again. Because I'm having a conversation. Um, and he says at the end of it, people actually were starting to think about some things differently. And uh, somebody commented on Facebook, quote, today a Baptist seminary student showed up at Sam bringing Gatorade and a highly uh, self-referential opinion about the statues. Men glad to say there was no ugliness whatsoever. Yeah, why would there be? I mean, generally the people that are supporting these statues are just standing there saying we support the statues. It's the other side that's trying to beat people up. I'm not sure his mind was changed, and I don't know if anyone's mind can be changed by a few hours of conversation, but I know that communication and listening are at the heart of true healing. That's true for you too. Another person said, thanks for talking with us at Silent Sam yesterday. I see now that an evangelical viewpoint seems to be an anchor for you. I grew up mostly in the Presbyterian church. My dad's death changed all of that. Uh, So, I mean, okay, so we're having a conversation uh, and of course, Jonathan Harris is a super nice individual. He's attended our summer schools. Nice guy. Uh, very. I mean, his his worldview is Christian, and he's he's for uh, these statues of monuments because he has Confederate ancestors. And he says, "Look, they weren't bad people. They 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 they, they fought, and this this statue represents the ancestors." And he says, "Look, they weren't bad people. They, they 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 fought, and this this statue represents them." This is the same thing with Ben Jones, Cooter, who's was considered a leftist for years. He's saying, look, I love Silent Sam. Went to University of North Carolina, marched in the Civil Rights Movement. I love Silent Sam. That statue needs to stay. That statue represents common people in the South. The soldiers that didn't own slaves. Soldiers that went off to fight and died that went to University of North Carolina. Uh, that's what that represents. And so this is this is having a conversation. Um, and understanding, uh, now I, yeah, right. The, the lefties weren't going to change Harris's mind because their arguments are silly, uh, but regardless, um, there was a conversation. And if we had more of that, less shouting and platitudes and ideological, uh, you know, driven, uh, uh, and all kinds of other things, uh, we might have a real conversation, but we can't because, uh, the left is generally interested in, uh, a type of um, closed-off discourse. Um, so there is no conversation. It's just tear it down. Um, now, if we understood all of Southern history as well, we might have a different view on Southern history, and that's the last piece, Scotch Snaps and Southern Music. Um, this is Tom Daniel. He wrote a little piece about the influence of Scottish music and Southern music, not just white Southern, what's called white Southern music, but also black Southern music. In fact, what Tom Daniels says is all just Southern music. I mean, this idea of, of, uh, he calls it music apartheid, where you have white music and black music, was, I mean, to be unheard of to Southerners. It was just all music. It was just all Southern music. This is what it was. Uh, But um, Northerners understood musical apartheid because they're the ones that created segregation anyways. Um, So uh, they actually differentiated music. If you listen, he says, look, you can even hear it in rap music. The Scottish snap, Scotch snap, is in rap music or uh, pop music as well. I mean, he, he uh, uh, Ariana Grande, uh, you know, Soldier Boy, these type of individuals, they have the Scottish snap. Also, jazz, bluegrass, country, all of that has this Scottish snap. And so, if you listen to it, you can hear it. You can hear the Scottish snap. And uh, he, he's, it's a great piece because he gets into this reconciliationist thing uh, with with uh, southern music. And music had that. I mean, it wasn't until you got to uh, the the influence of record companies and other things that you started having uh, the fact that certain people can only play certain music. You know, Ray Charles loved country music. He wanted to be a country music singer. Uh, I mean, when you have Darius Rucker, who's now a country music star, I mean, this is amazing. Oh, my gosh, you got a black guy out there being a country music star. It would have been common in the South if if it wasn't for this musical apartheid. That uh, where you have, well, these people have to sing this kind of music, and these people have to sing this kind of music. You can't sing this, and you can't do that because of your race. Southerners didn't pay attention to that. It was just good music, and they all played it. Uh, so bluegrass, the kind of uh, the Scottish type of, I mean, uh, 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 black Southerners played that kind of music all the time. It was just common. Um, this is what people did. And uh, on the other hand, white Southerners played blues music. They played it all the time. So um, it's, uh, we, our whole summer school this last time was on music and how there was a tremendous amount of reconciliation in that music. And it's it's something that's a, I mean, music is a healing, a healing experience. So um, I'd recommend reading that piece and, uh, of course, listening to some great Southern music. Uh, if, you, if you just want to feel the South, listen to the Southern music across the board. It's in everything and everything. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode of the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time.